Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Uh, We're working our way again through the miracles of Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus feeding 5,000 people. um, And uh, and then uh, the Gospels that give us that story often mention this story. Uh, Matthew goes in a a more detailed approach than he does John. But uh, the story of Jesus walking on water. So we want to look at verse 22 all the way down to verse 33. You'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 863. As always, if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you, or we can get one for you. main thing is have a copy of God's Word, uh, and let's read it together. So let's join, uh, stand up, and uh, read it together. Matthew the Evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? They got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Let's go to prayer. Father, I ask as always that you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience to Christ. May we encounter the Savior presented here as the disciples did. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Seated. When I was late middle school, early high school, we had a guest in our house. Uh, we had a soccer camp that we were, uh, that Owen County was hosting, and so we got to host one of the coaches of that. And, and so that was a really cool experience, but it meant that our guest uh, kicked my brother and I out of our bedroom. And I had a friend over to hang out with his soccer coach, so we could do soccer in the morning, in the, in, in the afternoon, in the evening. Uh, all day was soccer for a whole week. And that is when I became a communist. Anyways, um, uh, that's a soccer joke for those of you who don't like soccer. Anyways, um, um, this one particular night, we, we, we went to bed late and everything was going well. Had a great week with, with this soccer coach. And in the middle of the night, our house was broken into. It was broken into. And apparently I'm the only one, a light enough sleeper, to realize it. And I know they were broken into because someone opened the front door. Now, to be clear, our front door was rednecked by our, my mechanic father, who was like, we don't need no door. I can redneck this thing. It was so loud. Do you ever have that music teacher, right, that had the uh, chalk thing that made the music lines? You know what I'm talking about? I had one of those. And it sounded like uh, an angry witch with long claws just, just going down the chalkboard. This is what the door sounded like. Every time you open it, it makes this just awful screeching noise. And, and, and how it didn't wake anyone else is beyond me. But I heard that. I hear the steps coming in, and then I hear the chatter. At least two guys were in there. 
And I did what any self-respecting eighth grade freshman would do is I tightened my eyes and I said, please take my brother, but not me, right? <laughs> my brother was, was sleeping on an air mattress in our living room and he was just all decked out, you know, no room for another. I was on a couch. My, my friend that we invited over was on a couch and, and then our guest was, was in, was in our, our bedroom. And mom and dad's house is pretty straightforward. It's a like hallway down the middle and there's stuff on the left, stuff on the right, very straightforward. And, and you could hear them creep through the house and you could hear them talking amongst themselves. And, and I was scared to death. I grew up in a rural area. You didn't lock your front door. You just didn't do that back then. And, and so they could just walk right into the house. And, and I remember thinking, you can take whatever it is you want. Just don't hurt any of us. And please don't know that I'm awake, right? That's, 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 that's all it was. And they ended up leaving when, um, this is before cell phones, and they didn't use a flashlight or anything. They tripped over my brother on the air mattress. And when they tripped over him, we had a computer uh, in, in the living room that he hit a chair, which then hit the desk, which then made this, the, 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 the screen come on. Then they left. I got up the next morning and I started to panically go through the house. Did they take this or is this missing? And guys, have you seen this? Can you go check on this? And we, we were robbed last night. Oh, we weren't. We were robbed. I promise you, we were robbed. They, they practically fell on top of my brother, and, and it was the computer screen of all things that saved us. We were robbed. We need to see what's missing. We need to report this. This is a very serious deal. No one believed me. They thought I just had a, a very vivid dream. They thought I'd made it up. I was just trying to get attention because you know how older siblings act. And, and they did, did all of that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm telling you, we were, we, we were broken into. Well, they just didn't believe me until our weekly paper came out. And in the weekly paper, right there on the front, it said two men were, were arrested for a series of uh, burglaries on the road uh, that we live on. In fact, one of them was a little a feed store right up the store from us. And it had the street name on it. Like, now do you believe me? Look, they're right there. Their names and everything are right there in it. Well... Maybe we were broken into, <laughs> right? I mean, all the evidence was there, and I was convinced early on that we were broken into. But for some people, no matter how hard you plead with them, no matter how much evidence they see, it just takes a little more convincing of what is true. Sort of like the disciples, in many ways, this passage is a real turning point for the disciples. And there's several of them in Matthew's gospel. This is a real turning point because there's nothing new here. In fact, there's a lot of repetition in this story that we've already seen before. There's already been a, a bad storm that Jesus had to calm. We've already seen that story. We saw that back in chapter 8 or 9. We, we've already seen that. There's a lot of repetition here, but for some reason... It wasn't the raising of the little girl from, from the dead. It wasn't the opening eyes of the blind. It wasn't cleansing the leper. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was this moment that the disciples finally become convinced. And they notice two things about Jesus that we need to notice here this morning. The first of all, they notice Jesus' power. You see, they're starting in verse 22. Immediately he made, the Greek word there is to compel. You can see that in Luke, Luke 14, that word is used and translated compelled. He compels the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. 
And, and, and why does he dismiss the crowd? Here's Jesus at, at his greatest opportunity of popularity. He's got more Twitter followers and Tic Tac followers he'll ever get right here, right? And, and he's got a book deal, options coming to him. Oprah wants him on his show. And yet at that moment, he sends everybody away, including the disciples. Why? He would rather have solidarity. Now, don't misread what Jesus is doing here. Some of y'all here like solidarity because you're a boring human being. Let's, let's be honest, right? That is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is guarding his soul. Can we just add a quick footnote here on the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude? Not something we Baptists, particularly Americans, talk about a whole lot. This is a spiritual discipline. C.S. Lewis in the 1940s did a series of radio shows right during the, the, the Second Great War. And out of those talks came one of his most famous books called Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is basically three books put into one. And, and these were a series of talks, eventually one of those three books, which then eventually became Mere Christianity. After the talks, they were so successful that the, that the BBC offered him to do more of these things. And he refused wasn't because he didn't enjoy it or that it wasn't profitable for him. He did it uh, for, for two reasons. One, he would rather write than talk on a radio. Another reason was because he thought radio was trivial. Lewis really believed that music and silence was good. Noise was bad. In fact, he mentions this in Screwtape Letters. Remember, Screwtape Letters is Uncle Screwtape is a demon, senior demon, writing to a junior demon about how to tempt a certain Christian. So Screwtape writes this, No square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, uh, music and whatnot, but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the great, uh, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and viral. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We, these are demons, will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and the silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is still in progress. Now think about it. Lewis was worried about radio. You can't have a silent moment in your house. You got to turn on the radio. Now this was just the radio. Now let's add iPhones, social media, talk radio, digital music, noise, noise, noise. But in the Bible, silence is actually a form of worship. In Revelation chapter 8, remember it says, when the Lamb broke the seven seals, a triumphant moment in Revelation, it says there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. Silence. I'm willing to bet you've had that moment in your life where, where silence was itself an act of worship. Maybe it was at youth camp. Maybe it was in that revival. Maybe, maybe it was a personal devotion. It was that silence and meditation. That moment of sil solitude was good for your soul. So here is Jesus at the moment of greatest fame and influence, and he escapes to a solitary place of prayer. Now, the Bible constantly reminds us of our need of rest, relaxation, and meditation, and worship, and contentments. 
I'm willing to bet some of us need to seriously contemplate that spiritual discipline. You need noise on all the time. You got to go all the time. If we could pause and meditate upon the word of God and the gospel of Christ, it would be good for our soul. Well, what we could see here is that if Jesus needed time away to pray, how much more so you and me? Nevertheless, by, 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 by verse 24, the time has arrived for the storm. The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by waves, for the wind was against them. The boat, we know, is about three to four miles off ashore. And it isn't that they decided to go out that far. What is likely happening is the darkness mixed with the rain and the storm has caused them to veer out uh, this far out into the sea. The Greek word for beaten there, translated ESV as beaten, is really, you could translate that as tortured. In fact, Matthew's already used this word one time. Matthew chapter 8, Behold, it cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? It's the same word. This is why a lot of scholars see a connection between that account with spiritual warfare and this account of the storm, in that both are dealing with spiritual warfare. Whether or not that is true, I'll let you decide. But this is not, again, the first storm that we encounter. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, the disciples are all out at sea, and we were told that storm is a great storm, a grand storm, a super storm. Sharknado is coming for them. The Greek word there is mega. It is magnificent. It is mighty. It is deadly. And these guys know how to navigate a storm or two. They spent their entire lives out to sea a galley, but this one is supernatural. This one is unique. And it's striking, isn't it, that in that storm in chapter 8, Jesus is in the boat with them. Now, he's asleep, right? He's a Southern Baptist. He's asleep, right? Someone turned on the local pastor's sermon and he was out like a light, right? He's asleep, but at least Jesus is in the boat. You can cry out to Jesus right there and right then, and he can wake up, rebuke them, and then rebuke the storm. This time, there is no Jesus, which makes me realize Jesus knew a boat was, uh, storm was coming. Jesus knew it would be terrible and that they, their lives would be at risk. Why would he abandon them like that? Maybe the disciples are asking a question just like that. Why would Jesus, who knew everything, who could feed the 5,000 that we see in the previous passage we talked about last week, how could he abandon us? He sent us. He compelled us out at sea. Now we're about to die. Can I tell you what Jesus is doing here? It's right there in the text. Jesus, while the disciples are in the storm, is on his knees praying on behalf of the disciples. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that Jesus prays for his for fellow believers. Think about it. If Jesus were in the Welcome Center right now, praying for you, would you be more burdened with what it is you're carrying here this morning? Would you be as anxious as you are here this morning? Would you be troubled with whatever it is that is bothering you this morning as you are right now? I doubt it. Yet the Bible is very clear that Jesus prays for us. Hebrews chapter 7, He that is Christ is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Why? He's the great high priest. This is what the high priest does. Matthew chapter 19, the children were brought to him. He may lay hands on them and pray over each and every single one of those children. Luke chapter 22, but I have prayed, Jesus said to Peter, your faith may not fail. And if Jesus will pray for Peter, 
He'll pray for all of us because we're just as bad as he is. Verily I say unto thee. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus prays for us? Nevertheless, here they are in the midst of their sorrow, midst of their fear. It's 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. That's the fourth watch. And Jesus comes to them. Starting in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. So he bypasses the law of nature and he walks on water. And I do feel like I always have to remind people of this because we are arrogant in our knowledge of nature is that people in the ancient world knew that if you went out to, the, to your swimming pool in the, in, in, in the backyard and try to walk on the water, you will sink. They knew that. Don't, over, don't oversimplify the understanding of ancient people when it came to natural laws, right? They know that a little boy's lunch can't feed a multitude. They know that if you try to walk on water, you will sink. They knew that. This is why you have the story of Jesus walking on water. It's a miracle. Here he comes just walking out on water. In any natural explanation is utter madness. And let's be honest, right? Put yourself in disciples' shoes. Storm is coming. The boat is rocking. The waves are smothering you with, with, uh, with, 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 with water. And you feel like you're about to drown. At any minute, the boat could collapse and you could die. The thunder and the lightning, the, all of it is happening. And out in the distance, you see someone coming right to you. That is creepy. If this were a log cabin in the middle of the woods, would you get it then? It's a creepy scene. It's a creepy scene. In John's gospel, he wants you to see that Jesus is a light. After all, he emphasizes the darkness, and in the distance, they see a light. It's Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Matthew doesn't emphasize that as much here, but, but their reaction does make sense. They cry out, it's a ghost. That doesn't mean that there are ghosts, or that the disciples believe that there's ghosts. It's the same reason why many of us don't believe in ghosts until a door randomly opens, Right? For example, uh, uh, I've published a book on this. At our, our mom and dad's house, the last legal hanging of the county was on their property back, back in the 19th century, okay? And, and when we were young, they decided to cut down the tree that the guy was hung on. So when we had friends over, we told them, you got to watch out. That guy haunts these halls, right? Now, do I believe that he was haunting our halls? no. I wasn't going to tell my friends that. Then I wouldn't be a very good friend if I told them I was lying to them, right? Same thing, if you were in their shoes, what would come to mind was a ghost. Why? Because people do not walk on water. They get this. Now, hearing their fear, Jesus cries out to them. It's fascinating, isn't it? The storm is loud, but Jesus hears them. If only I could think of an application there. Verse 27, Jesus responds, Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, the English is fine, but the Greek is better. Because Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, don't worry about it. It's your boy, Jesus. Right? It's not what he says. He says, take courage. By the way, it's the same thing he said to the man paralyzed. Take heart. Same thing he said to the woman, the issue of blood. Take heart. Be, be courageous. Take courage. Take heart. Why? I am. Well, that is terrible English, but it's really good theology. In the Gospels, when Jesus uses the full in the Greek, I am, as opposed to in English, I'm, 
the, the Greek-speaking Jews would never say, I am, because I am was reserved for God alone. After all, you remember in Exodus 3 when Moses is at the burning bush? And Moses asked, well, who, who should I say sent me? Remember what God said? I am sent you. I am the great I am. And that understanding of God, which is where we get the term Yahweh, it means to be, the essence of being, uh, that he is the great I am. So one did not go around saying, I am, because then you're making a claim for yourself that isn't true. But what is Jesus doing here? Define the laws of, of nature and possibly the connection to the supernatural warfare from before. Jesus says, do not be afraid. The I am is here. He hears the prayers. He intercedes on their behalf. He comes to rescue. John, of course, will develop this I am into a theological narrative. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the vine. You are the branches, all of those, and there's others. Here's a clear indication of who Jesus believed he was. And at their greatest moment of need, Jesus reminded them what they should have already have known. The man who can raise the dead can calm the storm. The man who can heal the centurion servant from a distance is still with them when he's on shore. Do not be afraid. God himself is here, he says. Not only do we see Jesus' power, but we also see Jesus' promise. And this is where we see Peter walking on water, right? Peter is always the one who, who does before he thinks. I'm glad no one does that anymore. But he does join an elite group of people who have walked on water. I tried it when I was learning to swim. That's probably how I learned to swim, right? This is an elite group of people. And give him credit. At least unlike the disciples, he got out of the boats. But it doesn't last for long. The text tells us he's distracted by the storm rather than be focused on the God that is coming to him. And he begins to sink. And what happens? The Lord saves him. That's what it says there in verse 30. He says, Lord, save me. Now, this is an adequate prayer for redemption. You don't need to make it more complicated than this. Peter's sinking in the sea is a cry for redemption. It's a cry for salvation. Here it is physical. But what we've seen in Matthew's gospel is the physical cry is often correlated with a spiritual cry for redemption. After all, isn't this what has been promised? In Matthew chapter 1, Mary is told that she will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. The word saved here for Peter is the same word used there by the angel. Matthew chapter 8, they went out and woke him. Here at the storm, what is it that they said? Lord, save us. We are perishing. Same word there with that storm as it is here. Matthew chapter 9, the woman, the issue of blood says, if only I touch his garment... I will, you remember we retranslate it as, I will be made well. And then Jesus says, woman, your faith has made you well. But the Greek word is, if I touch him, if I come near him, if I cry out to him, I will be saved. That's what she said. And so Jesus re returns and says, woman, your faith has saved you. 
Chapter 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, this is common in the gospels, particularly with the miracles. We see a physical act of salvation, which is a picture of a spiritual work of redemption. That's what you have here. Peter is crying out, don't let me drown. But in that cry, we see the cry of the sinner. Lord, save me. And this will be the same cry the man next to Jesus on the cross will say, remember me when you come to paradise. It's the cry of a dying man for redemption. This is the promise of Jesus. All who cry out to him, no need of ritual, no need of of resume. If we just cry out to him, he will answer. See, there is a prayer God always answers, and that is the cry of a sinner for grace. And that is true if you are here and you've never embraced Jesus Christ, never found salvation for your soul. And that is true for you here. You've walked the aisle, you went swimming in church, you did all the ritualistic things that you were told you had to do, but still you are wrestling with that sin. Still you are wrestling with your, as a disciple. The good news is if you will cry out to him, is a prayer that he will answer. In fact, verse 33 is the climax of it, isn't it? After all of this happens, the walking on the water, the redeeming of Peter, those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If everything above is true, this is true. He has absolute authority, he has divine power, and he saves all who call to him, then the only proper response is worship. This is where we make a huge mistake when it comes to worship. We worship because we're told to worship. And when you're told to worship, you go through the motions, right? Think about it. If, if you're passionate about doing something to your house, say, some sort of project, you're passionate about it, you're going to put your all into it. You don't need anyone to tell you to do it. This is something you love to do. But if your spouse comes i.e. your wife comes and says, honey, I need you to do this, and it's got to be done stat. Stat means now, Michael Scott, right? And, and you're like, fine. Honey, I don't need you to keep reminding me to do things every six months, all right? Lay off of it. You'll do it out of duty. You'll be miserable the entire time. That's the, that's the difference with worship. If you're here out of a sense of duty, the next pandemic, you'll be gone. But if you're here out of the delight of your soul because you genuinely believe in the power and the promise of Jesus, this isn't ritual. It's an opportunity to do what it is you, 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 you desire to do and to worship with fellow believers. What an opportunity we are afforded. The only proper response to what the disciples have here is worship. He is, they discover, the great I am. They know they're in the presence of their creator, the one who calms the storm and walks on the water, and their redeemer, the one who takes the drowning soul and lifts them back up. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel we see the disciples in worship. This is not the first time we see disciples in worship. You go back to Matthew chapter 2. These weird guys, they are not from the Orient, despite what we sing. They come looking for Jesus. You remember why? 
We come bearing gifts so that we might worship him. The Magi. Matthew chapter 8, Behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him. The word there is to, is to worship. Chapter 9, while he was still saying these things, behold, a ruler came in, knelt before him, and said, My daughter is dying. Same word for worship. To prostrate oneself before a deity. In fact, what you'll find is only one person so far in Matthew's gospel has called Jesus the Son of God. Anyone remember who it was? It was the demons. Matthew chapter 8. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us? We read that just a few minutes ago. So what is it that you have here? The disciples have seen all the evidence they need. They've seen all the miracles. They've heard all the teaching. They've seen all the wisdom of Jesus. And yet it is at this moment, it clicks. I don't know why it clicks here and not before, but it clicks here. You remember when we feed the 5,000, they were trying to talk Jesus out of feeding everybody. Jesus, all we got is a little Lunchable that was half off because it's expired at the local Kroger. We can't feed all these people. Have them sit down on the grass. That's not the moment. This is the moment when they need Jesus the most. They discovered who Jesus is in his essence. And chances are there are some here Maybe you grew up in church. You've gone through the motions and you're here out of pattern. Sundays are your day off and Sundays is church day, so that's why you're here. But you still haven't had that moment when it clicks. This is who Jesus is. And this is what I believe. Let that moment be now. Let that moment be now. That even if you've been as disciples like these guys, you will proclaim with them with new eyes. Truly, you are the Son of God. This isn't noise. This is worship. One of my favorite third day songs is called King of Glory. It's based off of the psalm that asks similar questions, but I love the question they keep asking. Who is this King of Glory? Who is this king of glory that pursues me with his love and haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken words? My conscience a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Who is this king of glory who offers it to me? Who is this king of angels? O blessed prince of peace, revealing things from heaven, and all its mysteries. My spirit's ever longing for his grace in which to stand. Who is this king of glory? Son of God and son of man. Who is this king of glory with strength and majesty and wisdom beyond measure? The gracious king of kings. The Lord of earth and heaven, the creator of all things. Who is this king of glory? He is everything to me. His name is Jesus. Precious Jesus. Lord Almighty, king of my heart. King of glory. Let's pray.